good. Welcome back to Not My Type. It's Jack here. It's Malia. And uh, today we are actually going to be talking about movements. Yeah, so movements are also those things you see that look like arrows on mm -hmm. the Enneagram. They're the spaces um, between the types that are inherently connecting them. So if you've ever seen those figures that looked sort of like witchcrafty, um, <laughs> that's <laughs> those are the arrows that illustrate the way the types are inherently connected to each other. Yeah, and just a side note, if because uh, I know we throw a lot of visuals at you, but without actually giving, giving you, you any visuals. Yeah, um, if you go to our Instagram at not my type enneagram, you can find visuals on there, and they can really help direct your mind when we're talking about all this stuff. So okay. we really encourage you to look that up. So as we dive into movements, which are basically, as you said the arrows that point to the growth points and the stress points. So what big picture? What are movements? Why is that important to understand? Okay, so I think it's important to remember that the Enneagram is one system. Like, mm -hmm. you're not, and that's why this podcast is called Not My Type, because it's not like, hopefully, for those of you listening, you're not here to just like figure out your type and then check out because there's a lot more value to what you're learning. Um, and again, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, I encourage you to do so. Definitely do that. But like, a lot of times when I'm talking with people who know a little bit about the Enneagram, they're sort of like, what's your Enneagram? As if each individual mm -hmm. point on the Enneagram is an Enneagram, which is not what's going on. The Enneagram is a system, and all of these neuroses together are sort of symbolic of the human condition, which is honestly the ultimate neurosis, this one mm -hmm. giant screwed up cycle that we Cess have. Cesspool of neuroses. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's important to realize that because they are all interconnected and all coming from the root issue that like we're people who aren't perfect um, they are necessarily connected to each other and affect each other so for a little illustration each neurosis is essentially the tool that we're using every single day it's the car that we're using to get to work every day mm. but if we need a new battery or our tires are flat or something we are looking for another way to get to work because we still have to get to work and and do our daily lives so these other neuroses that we move to in stress or in growth are these other sort of backup points so there are things to be gained from the stress point and from the growth point but at the end of the day our neurotic cycle hasn't landed there these are temporary movements that color the way we exist and color the way we experience interaction with others experience ourselves but they're not very permanent at all but it shows how interconnected they are. Yeah, a lot of people will say to me, so do you become another type in stress or in health? Yeah, and I think there's often this idea that because people relate to other multiple types in the Enneagram, they're like, I don't feel like this type anymore. Right. I feel like I see this type in me all the or time. Right, I always get one of two on the quiz or whatever. Yeah, I had someone just the other day ask me, like, can you be two types on the Enneagram? Um, and the idea is you are not a single type. Mm. Like there's no one neurosis that you are. They were labeled as neuroses and labeled with numbers so that you wouldn't identify with them and be like, oh, that's me. Instead, they're just cycles to observe and denounce, essentially. But because they're moving together, the type that we move to in stress is the, the one we resort to when things get really bad. Yeah. So, for example, Malia and I are twos. Mm -hmm. And when the second neurosis, that giving of self and the surrendering of all I have in attempt to try and get attention and try and gain validation, uh, when that isn't working anymore, when we've been giving and giving and giving and others aren't giving back and our neurosis is flaring up and irritating us, we make a stress movement to eight. So this doesn't mean like you haven't done your homework, so you're stressed, so you mm. see the eight in yourself. Like maybe you might see that, but that's not what the stress movement is actually about. The stress movement is a temporary, often, often quick movement that comes after a long time of the neurosis not serving us the way we want it mm. to. Because we're addicted to these issues because we think that they'll solve our problems and they right. don't, they just create more. So that movement to eight for the two 
is a great example of how suddenly the two is willing to make demands of their own and stop giving and say, mm. oh, you owe something to me. There's a directness to it. There's a forcefulness to it that you see typically in eights. Um, so there is something to be gained from the eighth neurosis it, for, for twos that mean like there's an idea of asserting oneself and asserting one's needs yeah. that is important. But really these stress points are just where we go when our typical everyday neurosis isn't serving us as well as we think it should. And of course they're never going to serve us because they're patterns of death. Yeah. So let's talk about what the words stress and growth mean. What in your life would cause you to move to one or the other? So you said it was temporary, but at the same time you also said, you know, it could be a long pattern. It's not just like a spurt of the moment, oh, I didn't sleep, so I'm now I'm stressed. Yeah, I think it's, there's not this sort of, oh, I'm tapping into these stress and growth types all the time. No, I think the growth points we move to when we're willing to confront certain mm blind spots that we have and every neurosis is inherently creating blind spots within us mm -hmm. when we're so focused on this one cycle we're going to miss some other areas of life and existence that are going on so i think like we just illustrated with the two that movement to growth at the four is where the two is willing to acknowledge their own needs and sort of care for themselves and mm -hmm. care for their own heart and be distinctly aware of their own identity outside of a reference point right. you know because remember the two is a dependent type and they're also heart type looking for identity. So they're, the two is outsourcing identity to the world mm. outside of them. But the four seeks for internal identity. So that growth movement to two is the willingness to acknowledge, oh, I actually am a person and I have my own inherent worth. Yeah, so we're kind of starting to get into the numbers. So let's let's just go ahead and get into it. Okay, yeah. So like we just started with the two, I guess that's a, an okay place to yeah. start. So the two moves to eight in stress, meaning that things when they're going really poorly and the second neurosis is no longer giving me what I want, then I'll move to eight and get really pissed off and mm -hmm, really forceful right. and really angry um, and showing those lusty qualities, those mm -hmm. lusting for power and, and willing to mistake domination as a virtue. That's a big trend. And that movement to four is a, is a growth movement. But by contrast, let's move to the four now. So every type that is moving to their stress point, that stress point's growth type is that same type, if that makes That's any sense. That's so wild, okay. So where the four grows into type one, the right. one is stressing to type four. Mm -hmm. So the four stresses to type two. So in the fourth neurosis of being self-centered and focusing on one's own pain and over-identifying with it and, and secluding and separating from the rest of the world isn't working to get them attention anymore. They move to two and are suddenly willing to assess other people's needs and there's this degree of seeking attachment with the world or like relationship with the world in a way that the four usually doesn't because the four still wants attention but in their own neurotic cycle they're not going to reach out because they're withdrawn so the body's repressed mm -hmm. so it doesn't mean that they're suddenly very selfless people it doesn't mean that they're suddenly willing to do all these things for other people what it means is they're reaching out there's some degree of i'm going to grasp into the external world in a relational cloying seductive flattering way mm -hmm. the way a two would to try and form attention that i can't seem to get by withdrawing which can look sometimes a little healthy for the four. It can be like, oh, they're reaching out for the first time. They're not, you know, all of these things. Yeah. But in reality, that's them acting in stress. Yeah, I think that's actually a great point to make that the four errs on the side of selfishness. You know, the fourth mm. neurosis in isolation is this hugely egoistic, individualistic, self-centered neurosis. Um, so that movement to two might look like, oh, finally this person is thinking about people outside of themselves. Right. But that's actually just another movement another attempt to get attention because the fourth neurosis hasn't been working. 
And I think big picture, that's a good thing to note about the Enneagram that we keep bringing up is that you can't just take these as behaviors. It's not like, oh, someone's helping someone. That automatically means that that's a good behavior. That's a good thing. Yeah, no, no. There, there are reasons behind everything that we're doing. Right. So the question is, let's observe the behavior and then ask why. Mm-hmm. So the four moves to one in health or in growth. So that movement to one is, is to a body space where they're willing to put actions mm to the dreams and visions that they've had because the four is a naturally imaginative you know like that that self-centered existence it's so withdrawn but it also is very rich and fertile for an inner world that's distinct and remember the four as we covered last time is a frustration type so there's always this Mm -hmm. ideal they're reaching for in their mind and the one also being a frustration type is reaching for that ideal as well but is constantly putting action to that right so that movement to one for the four is the space where the four is suddenly willing to observe oh i actually can do something Mm. I can utilize my body. I can take action and it can make a difference in my environment. Right, which is super, super positive. Yeah, it is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Even though the first neurosis in isolation is not a good thing. You exactly. Know? So none of these neuroses are inherently good in and of themselves. But there are lessons to be learned from the principles of what's going on behaviorally. Mm-hmm. So now we've moved to one. Yeah, so the one stresses to four. Mm-hmm. So that stress movement to four is when they've been going, 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 trying to correct and fix their world, fix themselves, fix other people, whatever it is, trying to reach that perfect idea of self-guidance, trying to perfectly master this idea of how one should live. And when that is exhausting, because they keep failing, because they're humans, mm. they eventually move to this melancholic four-ish state. It doesn't mean they become fours, but what they're reaching for is this inactivity and this mm. solemn understanding and a devastation that I'm not I'm not understood like this pain is so deep mm. no one could grasp how hard it is for me to reach for this perfection and never really get it would you say that there's a connection between moving to a type that's so far removed from the body that the one who often seeks to do good things in order to feel good is almost feeling this devastation of there's nothing I can do that's good enough yeah I think so for sure and you see you see the four as perhaps one of the most pessimistic types on the Enneagram. Hmm. And that's really what's going on, is that ones can be very critical, but there is often a deep-seated optimism within them that like, oh, I actually have a vision of the good things that I'm doing and creating. Right. Otherwise, why, why have the motivation to do these things? Yeah, and when they're no longer these archangel correctors of the world hmm. that they have wanted to convince themselves that they are, they become despondent that like, I'm not as good as I want it to be, and the world isn't as good as I want it to be. Yeah. Um, so there is this four-ishness about it. But in health, the right. one is moving to seven. And so even though... Big se- difference. <laughs> very big difference. Even though the seventh neurosis has plenty of problems itself, it does represent a sort of freedom and self-forgetting that, hmm. that the one could do with. You know, a freedom of existence and free-spirited attitude. Like, I think ones and sevens are really interesting to look at in contrast, both as frustration types, both reaching for an ideal reality. Mm. But one of them is doing it by completely forgetting the idea of self-control. The seven has abandoned self-control, essentially. And the one has utilized self-control to an unhealthy degree. They've Mm -hmm. become obsessed with the idea of self-control. Which goes back to our episode about object relations. You can see how they're doing the opposite, but with the same... The same affect. Right, right. So there's the same relational affect of frustration, but they're responding to different wounds. And because of that, there's this very different appearance to, to a very similar feeling. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So that seven space for the one is the willingness to let go of needing to do everything correctly and being willing to just like take things a little bit 
less seriously. You know, there's, yeah. a, there's a deep seriousness and restraint to the one. Hmm. And for all intents and purposes, the seventh neurosis is the least restrained and the least serious. Yeah. Obviously, this is skewed because of who I know, but I think about the ones that I know, and they're very calm and, like, persistent about the rules and regulations that they believe in. To, yeah. And then we're, the sevens I know are like chaotically fun. They're like going off and doing all of these different things. And so to mm. see a one move into seven, it's this freedom to say, I can go after this fun thing and that doesn't make me bad anymore. And that's actually a great point is, is remember like the one's separation from the mind. The one is so far removed from the mind that they don't think they're allowed to go after their own plans. Mm -hmm. And the seven, being a mind type, but also being an aggressive type, who's constantly going after what they want, is that space that the one should move to, where yeah. there's there's no more obligation, but rather a joy and delight in yeah. in what we're doing, mm -hmm. you know? And so the seven? So the seven moves to one in stress. Right. Which it seems like we're kind of bouncing around, but really there's like... They're very interconnected. Yeah, it's a yeah. Mir it's a mirroring system. So the seven becomes suddenly more irritable with the world when the mm. seventh neurosis stops working. So when everything's super positive and I keep going and everything's great and there are no problems in my life and when problems do keep coming and the seventh neurosis doesn't serve them anymore and they can't keep reframing and explaining away all these issues, yeah. suddenly there's a movement to one where the world becomes um, not enough for them mm. in a way that's not like hopeful like it typically is, right. but rather I'm just irritated. It's that wrathful body mm -hmm. feeling of I'm annoyed that this isn't enough for me. And because of that, the seven can become sort of critical of others, typically. Mm. Because remember, the seventh neurosis is still the core type. You know, if you're right. a seven, you're not going to suddenly become a one. So as a seven is trying to avoid pain, they're still going to be typically blaming others. But then you just add that one-ish criticism, and they're willing to be irritated by anything in the world. And that cheery optimism is replaced with a negative, almost drill sergeant attitude sometimes. Mm. This idea that, uh, no, this could be better, this could be better, this could be better. And it could be better for me. Yeah. So it's still being driven by this, what's best for me? I want to go get that. Yeah, they're still trying to pursue. But they're doing it in a different way. Yeah, it's just being colored. I think that's what yeah. it is. The first neurosis colors it with a jaded disappointment. You mm. know, because all the frustration types are dealing with disappointment. It's just the seven is denying disappointment. They're denying the pain of disappointment. And the one can't help but see disappointment frequently. Mm. because they're so concerned with fixing it. But in growth, the seven moves to five. And so that, mm. that five-ish space is inward focused, it's contained, and it's observing rather than engaging. So there is almost an over-engagement with the world that the seven is doing. Because remember, the vice for seven, or the sin for seven, is gluttony. Mm. And that really is an over-engagement with everything in the world, is that I want to be constantly stimulated by the external world. I want to be mentally stimulated, but also just be experiencing the world in a rich way. Yeah. So much so that it becomes neurotic. Remember, like, the yearning to be satisfied isn't a bad yearning. But the neurosis itself is the problem. It mm -hmm. just thinks, I need to keep engaging, keep engaging, keep engaging. But that five-ish space for the seven offers some degree of groundedness and some degree of separation. It's actually really healthy for them. And so when they're growing, that means they're probably willing to observe their own pain to some degree and move inward to reflect on it and observe it and see the world as something not necessarily to be engaged with at all times, but that they can exist separate from it and that they don't have to be constantly stimulated by everything. Yeah, I find it really fascinating that the seven in growth and in stress kind of move to a more reserved, more restrained type. Mm. Yeah, and there's nowhere really to go for them, you know, because mm -hmm. the seven... They I can't would, go up. <laughs> I, would, I would argue second to the eight. The seven is the most high energy type right. and most external type on the Enneagram. So 
for the five, the five moves to seven in stress. And I think this is such an interesting movement. It's really intriguing for me. Yeah. Um, because I think fives are, in my experience, arguably the rarest type, maybe fours. But I think um, you don't see this a lot unless you know a five really well. Um, but this cynical attitude that the five constantly has about the world, that they are observing with skepticism and caution and learning and gathering information and only trusting themselves, mm. that gets really exhausting, you know, because every neurosis only lasts so long, like it only works for so long. And so the, when the five is in extreme stress and duress and the fifth neurosis is no longer working, they move to seven and suddenly kind of take on this cheery, like silly, sarcastic, it, it's almost uncomfortable. Like they take the world too lightly all of a sudden and are mm -hmm. willing to like do really impulsive things. Like there's there have been a few fives I've loved a lot in my life, two specifically I'm thinking of, who had this pattern of like when they were really stressed about a lot of things in their life, when there were relational issues and practical issues all, all colliding at once and they could no longer stay removed from those situations. They would make this seven-ish movement and like be drinking a lot. There, there was just this like need for engagement, this gluttonous engagement with the world that could kind of ease the tension within. Um, and it made them kind of fun to be around sometimes, like the, just the world became a joke all of a sudden instead of like right. this dangerous place to be observed. But it's actually kind of similar to the four who moves to two in stress and you think, oh, that's a good movement. Right, right. There's this movement to seven that feels a little bit like the seven-ish space. I think most people could observe this and acknowledge this. Seven-ish space is more palatable to most people because it's optimistic, it's fun, mm. it's it's fun-loving, it's sweet. Everyone loves a seven. Yeah, exactly. Everyone loves a seven. But that five-ish space, most people don't love because it, it can be kind of cold, it can be detached, it can be a little selfish. Right. So that movement to seven, though it is also selfish, it is a lot more palatable than, mm. than the five space. So I think a lot of people love when fives are in that space and mistake that as a good thing. Like, mm. oh, you're finally lightening up and not getting so severe and cynical about everything. Right, but it almost seems like they're still hiding. They're just hiding under a different type. Exactly, they're just using the seventh neurosis to feed the fifth. I think that's the point, yeah. is that like each of these stress points we dip into temporarily as a vehicle to get us back to the place we're comfortable. Mm. Because our core neurosis is what we're comfortable with. That's what we've learned to exist in. And so these stress points are just sort of like a, uh, I need to like work out really quick. It's sort of like going to the gym <laughs> yeah. to get a workout. It's like, I've been lying on the couch for a thousand years and I feel terrible about myself. <laughs> right. So I'm gonna go to the gym and mm -hmm. expend a lot of energy or whatever. And then I can come back, feel good about myself and return to my daily life of doing nothing, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that really is kind of a great, great example, I think. This yeah. idea that we would much rather just do nothing and, and exist in our comfortable little lives. But when that doesn't work, we do something that feels uncomfortable to relieve the stress right. and then move back. Right. And likewise, we can't exist in those growth points for very long, even though it would be ideal. You know, like mm. if we as twos could always be gathering information from the four, that four space, that's not what our ego can handle. Our ego can't handle that level of self-centeredness, not because we're such selfless, wonderful people, but this space of constantly acknowledging one's own needs is threatening to the, the second ego. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So likewise for the five, they move to eight in growth. And I think this is a really interesting movement because just like the four, remember how the four moves to one in growth? Mm -hmm. That's a movement to a body type, which they have repressed. They, like the four has repressed the body, so right. they're not doing as much as they should. Likewise, the five has also repressed the body. So their observations and their cynical separation is now given some action. They're willing to engage with the world. Mm. They're willing to, to reach out and have great impact because no one is more aware of their impact on the world than eights. Like eights have the greatest impact on the world because they are the lar the largest presence right. on the Enneagram. So this five movement to eight 
is the willingness to be very present and be big, mm. you know, to be huge and to be doing in a way and existing in a way that isn't just cold and separated, but is fiery and intense and real um, and vivid. Mm. And almost like the world is theirs for the taking, you know, because the fifth neurosis would much prefer that pact that we talked about in the last episode. Yeah. This idea that, oh, I agree that I wouldn't engage and you agree that you wouldn't engage with me. So that movement to eight is actually really threatening because it's suddenly demanding of me that I be interacting with the world constantly. So there's a really good analogy that Jack and I have talked about a lot for the five neurosis that I think is really helpful for this, which is that this dragon is in this cave and has all this gold, right? Well, I would say they, they put their back to the cave. You know, right. it's like there there's a village down below and the, the villagers are collecting their pitchforks and torches ready to come mm -hmm. kill this dragon because they're threatened by the dragon at the top of the mountain. Um, and so that five-ish response to avoid rejection, because remember they're a rejection type, is to just put their back to the cave and block off the world so that no one can come steal my gold, but I also don't have to let them interact with me. You know, their pitchforks yeah. won't do anything against my giant scales. Because the vice of greed can sometimes mislead people to think that it's like they're taking, go, yeah, they're go-getters and they like want more, but it's not necessarily. It's more of a keeping, yeah, a stinginess. Of I don't want to let have. you take what I already have. I don't necessarily want more of it, but I just don't want to lose what I already have. So I find it interesting that when they grow, they go to a, a space that not only is engaging with the world, but also lets people in. They consume the world, even if it's a negative thing for the eighth neurosis. There's an engagement. I think the key there is that the five is willing to actually leave the cave, mm. that they're, they're willing to stop having their back to the wall and keep all and keep looking at all that they've already stored up but actually go and do something in the world you know even if it's to go burn down the villagers you know at least they're going to engage right. like the eight is not afraid of what they will lose there is that hidden fear but that's why eights look so confident because they're persistently engaging so viciously with the world and so intensely mm -hmm. that they trust themselves to keep burning away any potential predators right before they can even get up to that cave and steal the gold mm -hmm. and i think of this idea of gold in this dragon metaphor as actually really crucial to the rejection types in general. That the five's response is to put their back to the cave and that's how they avoid rejection from, from the villagers. Or that, mm -hmm. And that rejection is the killing. You know, that's the come up and let's remove them, let's kill this beast. But the eight is the dragon that goes and burns all the villagers before they can even threaten them. It's, yeah. it's like as soon as they see people congregating, it's I'll go kill them. Because the eight space is dominating and demanding. But the two is sort of like that dragon that says, hmm, well, I don't have the power to go burn them all but I also don't have the willpower to stay in the cave. So mm. I'll go down there and invite them to come take all my gold so that they won't hate me. And then, and yeah, they they'll love me. me. Right. They'll love me and they'll keep me around. Um, but that eight-ish space, I think is really important to talk about. So that eight moves to five in stress. So mm -hmm. where the eight is engaging with the world and, and constantly fighting and, and battling, this movement to five is what occurs after severe stress. And eights love to act like they're never stressed, I think, mm -hmm. because stress is a form of weakness and vulnerability that's threatening. But stress still has impact on eights. So when the eighth neurosis is no longer working, that constant going, 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 fighting, 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 like being against the world, when that doesn't work anymore, the eight moves to five and is even more self-protective, you know? Yeah. There's this hoarding and there's this, I'm not even gonna share it all. You know, like eights are typically not much of sharers vulnerably either. Um, but they're still engaging with the world. So that movement to five is that space where they can sort of relieve the stress. So I can go back into the cave for a second, reassess and count what I have here, my inventory, and then I can move back out and actually do something. And the eight then moves to two. In health or in mm -hmm. growth, yeah. yeah. So that growth movement for the eight to two 
looks like this willingness to give, actually, and, and to be vulnerable. It's a movement to a heart space that the eight has so disidentified with. Yeah. Um, and remember, that is so key. Like, the five moving to two is this willingness to be vulnerable and to mm -hmm. exist in a really kind of flowery, feminine way. And I think it's actually important to recognize, remember that, that discussion we had about the rejection types in the last episode. Um, the eight has severed their sense of need for nurturing affection. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking about this today, actually, before recording, kind of prepping these thoughts. I was realizing by severing their need for nurture, they have also severed their ability to nurture, really. Mm -hmm. So they can protect really well. But that idea of expressing a nurturing force from them yeah. is really threatening because that suggests, oh, I also need nurture. So that movement to two is the willingness to kind of have a vulnerable heart, have a bleeding heart that is willing to give, um, to give everything. I also find it really fascinating for the eight's movement to two is that instead of the dragon feeling like the only way to protect myself is to burn. And to kill. The, the two says, I can actually reach out and love and people will see me for who I am. It's not relying on control and power. It's not relying on leverage. Or domination. Or domination. It actually opens up for this idea of love versus lust is what we've also talked about before. Is that if I actually give a willing hand, if I actually nurture, they will accept me as well. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's really... The it's softening really, of the heart. It's really key to remember this, like this theme we've been talking about, is that the growth movement is that they're gathering something good from the two. You know, like the eight is gathering something valuable that the two inherently knows. There's something that the growth point already knows that the central point, that core type, doesn't know yet. So that movement to two is that recognition that, oh, I actually can be vulnerable and give of myself and I won't necessarily lose everything. Yeah. I think likewise, though, the two, that giving that they've learned, mm -hmm. is their form of leverage. Right. That's how they're gaining power. Yeah. So the willingness to, like, even move to that eight space in stress is just the worsening of it. It's right. I, I'd prefer to get back to my typical form mm -hmm. of leverage, which is wooing and flattering and winning. But for now, I can make demands. Yeah, and so you'll notice we're back at two. But if you are a really avid listener, you'll, you'll also recognize that there are three types that we haven't talked about. Yeah, we have done the full circle, it seems like, but we skipped out three types. So earlier in the last episode, we learned about object relations and the three mm -hmm. different triads, the three different dominant affects that respond to the wounds that we experience. And those three were frustration, rejection, and attachment. We haven't covered the attachment types today, though, as far as movements goes. And that's because the attachment types exist in their own little Bermuda triangle. triangle. Bermuda yeah. triangle is a term I've heard before. I think it's really interesting. But so those six types that we just covered, the rejection types and the frustration types together, are growing in and stressing to each other. And that's called the hexad. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Bermuda triangle, these attachment types, sort of exist in a loop. And I think that's really interesting to think about because three, six, and nine are the representative middle points of their centers of intelligence. Yeah. So the three is representing the heart space, the six is representing the head space, and the nine is representing the body space. They're each dominant and oppressed in that same center. And because of that, there's something that they each inherently get and are connected to each other about because they are dominant and oppressed in the same center. So the nine is typically a type that doesn't really engage much with the world, but is rather merged with it. It's just this, I will let myself be consumed by the world, and then I can stay comfortable. 
Um, but that doesn't work forever, you know? Like you can keep avoiding your problems and keep existing in the most comfortable, chill, I'm unbothered mm. and I'm unaffected by the world. That will only last so long. And so this central lie for the nine, this idea that I don't matter, makes one of their biggest goals being unaffected by the world. The six, by contrast, is so very affected by the world constantly. So in stress, the nine can no longer stay unaffected by the world and is suddenly affected by everything. So yeah. the nine that's typically quite optimistic and, and relaxed and low energy and just chill suddenly takes on this six-ish stress space of being nervous about everything. That like, oh, this could go wrong and this could go wrong and this could go wrong and what if I fail? But in growth, the nine moves to three and is willing to take action and put action to the person that they really are. Hmm. And I think it's actually interesting to realize that the three, even though their ego is kind of fragile and faked, they're very concerned with themselves. You know, they have this great concern about the image they're presenting. And the nine in their own neurosis has no consciousness of the image they're presenting. Right. So that movement to three is actually a willingness to acknowledge and assert myself. It's a willingness to assert my own agenda because that three as an aggressive type is constantly going after what they want. And nines often look like the most humble people. Like we were just talking mm -hmm. about this. Yeah. But it's not necessarily they're aware of the fact that they're these humble people. It's an unintentional but it's humility. Like they're just unaware at mm -hmm. all. Like just generally of their presence. Yeah, and I think even though the third neurosis is the vice of vanity, remember yeah. like for a three, for like types who are threes, like that's still gonna be an issue. Mm -hmm. But for the nine, they have something to learn from that kind of like conceitedness actually. Right. Because the humility has been blown out of proportion. It's the ninth neurosis isn't just humility, it's this like complete forgetting of self. And mm -hmm. the three is constantly aware of the self they're presenting to the world. But by contrast, that three stresses to nine. Mm, yeah. So the three who's typically very ego centered and working really, really, really hard and moving, moving really fast in the world to impress and to win others over, um, when that is burning them out, which it eventually does they move to this vegetative state at nine where I would rather just be comfortable and I would mm -hmm. rather just disengage from the world and be very relaxed and have no problems and have no concerns. So that nine space is, is their way of relieving stress to just sort of like sit on a couch, you know, like for some threes that might just be doing nothing, suddenly becoming very stagnant because they've been resisting rest all this time. They've been yeah. working so hard that they burn out and their body might literally stop them. You know, it's a mm -hmm. movement to the body type. That movement to nine is a return to the body. It's like you haven't been stopping at all. Mm -hmm. And so the body sort of forces the ego to rest. And um, instead of going back and forth, going with the flow, trying to kind of put on a mask for whoever it is, they kind of they retreat. Well, they retreat inward. Yeah. That's their chance to unmask in their lonesome. You know, right. it's like I can't, I can't unmask in the real world where I'm engaging with it because everyone will see me and mm -hmm. I'll be exposed. So the only place I can take off this exhausting mask is at home, you know? Yeah. So it's not literally at home for the threes necessarily, but there's this movement inward where they can take a chill pill for a second, which sounds like a good thing, but it's actually just kind of feeding the ego even more. Because remember, the stress point is just a, a vehicle to return us to the right. most comfortable state. So the three is used to this image focus and this egoism. Um, and so the nine, that space of... of doing nothing and being nothing is only really valuable to them if it if it doesn't compromise the image they've already collected mm. that nine space is often very hidden for threes that they don't want anyone to see that stress space 
So when the stress is building up and building up and building up, they might retreat and suddenly disappear and disengage from the world and then return yeah. with all their fervor and vigor. They kind of tell themselves, well, I can continue being this chameleon because if I get tired, I can just retreat and then come out brand spanking new. Exactly. And no one like no one thinks that about their stress type. You know, no one's like consciously thinking, oh, I can use this to my advantage. But we see that as a pattern in life, yeah. you know, like it's sort of the backup plan. You know, mm -hmm. like like we were just talking about for us, for our types as the two, it's like it's much more comfortable for for the second neurosis to be giving, 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 sacrificing, sacrificing, flattering, indirectly trying to get what they want. Mm -hmm. But the eight is sort of the backup plan. It's like, well, I can always start that screaming and demanding. Right. If I that need doesn't to. work. Right. And it's not comfortable. Yeah. It's not comfortable because like you think about threes moving to nine. And even though that is their stress point, they're not comfortable with that space of rest mm -hmm. because it feels like I'm going to lose. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to lose this productivity that I had collected. But by contrast, the six is the space they move to in growth. So the three moving to six looks like this awareness actually of the things that are consistent in life. Because the six is very aware of, of the need for stability. Hmm. And because the three is so self-confident, they're not usually aware of their need for stability. It doesn't strike them as something that they're desperate for. Um, so that movement to six is a willingness for, for a couple of things, a willingness to see that some things are stable. And, and yeah. that like sometimes love is given consistently. Because remember the third neurosis is this ego built around the, the lie that I'm only as valuable as what I produce. Mm -hmm. But that sixth space shows us that there is a degree of faithfulness and consistency that does exist and that people are worthy of love. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's actually like real love isn't given based on how well you've worked, um, but is given simply because it's faithful and simply because it is consistent. So that movement to six also looks a little bit like this willingness to see the obligation the three has to mm. others. Because remember, threes repress the heart, and sixes are very aware of their obligations to others. So that movement to sixes is this awareness that, oh, there are other people that I'm committed to. You know, a lot of times the three in extreme neurosis can look like this very conceited, vain, fake type. Mm -hmm. uh, because they are, you know, like the third neurosis is fake, it is vain. And because of that, it is willing to deceive others in order to receive that validation and that feeling of being seen. But that movement to six is the suggestion actually to the three that I have loyalties outside of me that yeah. I must acknowledge and that I must give myself to. And I think threes actually kind of fear that in their own neurosis. So that movement to six obviously doesn't last very long. You know, mm -hmm. those are things they need to learn, but it's not like they suddenly become sixes. Right. But the six stresses to three. So most of the time they spend all their time worrying about how secure am I, how, how safe am I, do I have what I need? But that three movement is when they're planning and they're preparing and they're worrying isn't working for them anymore, it suddenly becomes an ego thing. Mm. Suddenly they're very aware of their image and the way they're presented to others. Um, and there's a loved one I have who is a six and had an eating disorder for a long time. And that movement to three was the response to severe bodily stress, mm. that the body had been so mistreated that eventually that three-ish space was all that was left there was only an ego that had to be fed and prepared for. Yeah, presentation. Yeah, and the six is really just using that stress point as a way to get back to their core issue. So remember, the six still wants security and support, but the movement to three is this space where maybe if I present a prettier ego, a prettier image, mm -hmm. a prettier face, I will get the support I need. So their end goal isn't the same as the three. They're not actually concerned about attention, but it's focused on getting attention for the sake of the support they need. But the six grows to nine and is willing to receive a peaceful attitude about life 
and about the world and that they're planning and they're preparing and they're worrying actually hasn't been doing them any good. Mm. So that growth space of existing in a relaxed way and existing in an optimistic, cheery, kind of rose-colored glasses perspective that the nine has, that's something the six actually desperately needs. And so there's this receiving of good things. The surety of the world. Exactly. The nine actually has this very simple trusting perspective. Mm -hmm. Surety is so right. There's this trusting perspective of the nine that the six completely lack. And so that movement to nine is the willingness to actually trust and the willingness to actually let their guard down and and be at peace. So why do you think that the three, six, and nine are separate from the rest of them? I think, like I was talking about a little bit earlier, it's because they each represent the three centers of intelligence. So I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but it's sort of like, look at three for a second. Two and four both hold traits of three-ishness. Mm-hmm. So they're, I think of the heart types, like all three of them together, they are grouped together. But two and four are just sort of derivatives of three because the three represents the greatest problem with the heart, you know? Yeah. And the six represents the greatest problem with the head. Even though six and seven can look so different, there are traits that, that connect them. And there are traits that connect the six and the five. So the, the six represents the issue that all humans have with the head. And the nine represents the issue that all humans have with the body to some degree. I don't have an explanation for why they exist in their own closed loop, but I think it is important to note that they are representative of the three centers. Yeah. They sort of stand to show the problems that we have in a broad way with the body, the heart, and the head. So some common questions that I hear that I don't know if you listeners might have, but I'm going to throw them out there. Can you digress to one of your wings' stress numbers? Um, I suppose you could argue you can see any of the neuroses in us at any given point, but I don't think that our stress point has anything to do with our wings. I think wings are just behavioral colorings. They, they add detail to the way we think that we can solve our problems. Mm. But, you know, like if you're a core three, your stress movement is always going to be to nine and not to two. Right. Okay, another question. Is it common for people to mistype because of confusing patterns for regular neurotic patterns? I think absolutely. I, I totally think the movements matter a lot when it comes to mistyping. I think people who are in periods of their life that are easier might identify with their growth point, you know? Yeah. So an eight might see themselves as a two or a two might see, see themselves as a four. And I can think of individuals actually that represent those very same movements. Mm-hmm. Or vice versa. People who are consistently under severe duress might see themselves in their stress type. So with all of these different types, I think it's important to remember, like I said at the beginning, the neuroses exist together sort of as this giant stew of horrific problems that we're all addicted (laughs) to. So these stress and growth points are are places where we can learn things that are important. Um, But it's not like you necessarily want to be that type, you know? As yeah, a no six, one wants to be their own type. As a six, you don't necessarily even want to be a nine, even though it look like may look like nine, seven is your life or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the neuroses are still neurotic problems. This is just sort of, these movements help illustrate the way that the human condition is interconnected and that we're yeah. learning other responses to the human condition from other humans, you know? When you look at humans, it's really easy to just look at people and say, oh, they're so healthy, or look at them go, or... Look, they're doing they're, good things. Yeah, they're doing good things, or look at them, they're so stressed out, they're acting out. But what's really valuable about the movements is that we ascribe good and bad to these behaviors or to these whatever, 
And so when we start thinking about the Enneagram, you start noticing how, you know, when a four becomes more outgoing, that's not necessarily a positive thing. When the two becomes more aggressive, that's not necessarily a positive thing. I think it's really helpful to understand everyone's intimate neurosis and how it affects their life and how it creates these behaviors when really we don't understand the why. And everything is not what it seems. It's yeah. not as simple as, oh, you see behavior A, that's a good thing. Right. No, sometimes behavior A is a response to issue X. And I, I want to remind everyone who's listening, like this podcast is called Not My Type because we do not want to encourage any identification yeah. with each type. It's important to be able to recognize oh, this neurotic pattern is real in my life, and this is the one that my my human existence has become addicted to. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that's who you are. You know, like in shorthand language, Malia and I might say that we're twos, but that doesn't mean that we are the second neurosis. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to just remind everyone that there is a there is a level of humanity that does exist in a good way. There are some parts of humanity that are actually really good, but the Enneagram is not a self-help tool. That's, that's the way it's been illustrated, but it is not to help you just like, oh, here's what I need to do to fix myself. Like, no one's going to fix themselves. The Enneagram was a system of neuroses created to be identified and sort of to call us out yeah, on the definitely. things that we're doing that are wounding other people and ourselves. Mm -hmm. So remember, like, you can't just force yourself out of your stress type or into your growth type. You don't want to just, like, shove yourself into a different point in the cesspool of neurosis. Mm -hmm. It... it it isn't as simple as that. So guys, thanks for listening to episode five of Not My Type. Uh, again, reach out to us at notmytypeenneagram at gmail.com and on our Instagram at the same handle. So reach out with questions, DM us, whatever. We'll have a Q&A at some point. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. And so for next time, we are going to be looking at harmonics, Ooh. which is discussing the topic of how we in neurosis respond to conflict yeah so it should be good so check us out all right we'll see you guys later bye no the air smells like nutmeg and i hate it you hate nutmeg it's simply the worst thing that's ever existed i hate it so what much. do you feel about cinnamon i used to hate it now i'm okay with it no i like it nutmeg how do you eat at christmas it. time <laughs> what you, are you eating that's so full of nutmeg do you not enjoy treats at Christmas time? What Christmas treats are you having? Everyone, every, all the Christmas treats. Yeah, they're usually chocolate chip cookies covered with white, white chocolate and like. Do you like my pancakes? Christmas tree sprinkles. Yeah, those are good. I put cinnamon in those. I know. Huh. I, again, I like cinnamon now. Oh. Nutmeg, I will forever hate. Okay. More out of principle than even experience at this point. It does have an earthy taste to it. I'll give you that.